They're the frontline heroes of the pandemic. They were also first in line to be offered the COVID vaccine when it became available. So it comes as a bit of a riddle when healthcare workers in Canada are still not rolling up their sleeves. Ontario and Quebec both announced mandatory vaccines for those workers who are, after all, working with COVID patients. Now, both have backed off, both provinces, that is, backed off, saying it would lead to thousands leaving the healthcare sector and potentially leading it to a collapse, although neither province provided any detail on their claims. What is behind the hesitancy? We know there have been thousands of canceled procedures and tests that were scrubbed because of COVID, but as the last line of defense against the virus, it might seem strange that these workers would refuse to be inoculated, if not to protect themselves and perhaps their patients or their families. In this case, we're talking about those who are not allergic to the ingredients in the vaccine or the slight religious exemptions. Our unpublished vote question asks, should healthcare workers be vaccinated against COVID to keep their jobs? 15.5% said yes, 83.7% said no, and 0.8% said unsure. However you're watching and listening to our show, whether through our social media channels on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube, or podcast channels, iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and more, I'd like to remind you, you can still cast your vote on this topic at unpublished.vote and then email your MP to tell them why. Joining us to discuss the issue of mandatory vaccines for healthcare workers, Dr. Doris Grinspoon. She is the CEO of the Registered Nurses Association of Ontario. Marty Moore is a lawyer with the Justin Set Justice Center for Constitutional Freedom. And Colleen Flood is a university research chair in health law and policy at the University of Ottawa. And Doris, uh, the uh, RNAO supports and calls for full vaccination for its members. How much resistance was found by your members? Almost none. In fact, we were the first that came out in July mm -hmm. already that we wanted mandatory vaccination for all healthcare workers in all settings and sectors and also for all educators from daycare to all the way to university, et cetera. Um, I, I, you know, I don't know if you follow tweets, but uh, I keep saying to the premier, look at the tweets, which I know he does because he follows me and his team does. Uh, the nurses that are leaving are not leaving because of the mandatory vaccination, are leaving because of Bill 124. That's why they are leaving. Uh, the great, in fact, we have nurses that have left because they don't want to work with unvaccinated people. So, you know, some hospitals mandated vaccination, long-term care across the board now, as you know, pre, um, uh, Minister Phillips uh, mandated vaccination in long-term care. So the premier has created a patchwork of uh, chaos, quite frankly, because when you only mandate or support vaccination in some sectors and in some settings, i.e. long-term care, he stood up with this, with this minister to support that and some of the CEOs in some of the major hospitals, and you don't on others, what happens is if you were uh, working in one of those settings that the demands mandatory and you don't want, you just go to another one that is not. So those patients and the staff working in the more, you know, um, loose sectors, to call them quite frankly that way, uh, will have a higher dose of unvaccinated people. It's a disaster, a disaster. Marty, the uh, Justice Center for Constitutional Freedom feels mandatory vaccines for healthcare workers violates the charter. How so? 
Yes. Well, under Canadian law, it's been an established principle that that we respect the right of individuals to bodily autonomy in respect to their personal health care decisions. And I don't think, uh, you know, putting people to the choice of your livelihood or your bodily autonomy uh, is a respect for that right. Uh, and so the question then becomes, is this a justified violation of individuals' charter rights? And so questions that are certainly raised uh, by medical professionals who have contacted us concerned about the imposition of these mandatory vaccination policies are, you know, does it actually recognize the science around some of these issues? And that's going to be a key test when it comes to the constitutionality of something is, are these measures minimally impairing? Are they arbitrary? So for example, uh, many uh, healthcare workers, as you noted, have been on the front lines of this pandemic from the start. They've often acquired natural immunity through a COVID infection. And, you know, for example, Israeli state uh, study uh, data of 2.5 million people indicates that that natural immunity may in fact be six to 13 times more protective uh, than being double vaccinated. And so these kind of uh, scientific data points aren't recognized in these mandatory vaccination policies that have been imposed in settings such as British Columbia and have been rejected now in Ontario and Quebec. And so there's those constitutional concerns that are definitely connected to, you know, are these policies narrowly tailored to addressing the issue, which I would assume is the risk of transmission. And unfortunately, COVID vaccinations do not prevent and stop people from actually contracting or even transmitting viruses. And so those questions need to be considered carefully, and they probably will be in the courts. And okay, Colleen, I'll put the same the same question to you then. Does this a mandatory vaccine violate the charter? Um, well, with all due respect, um, I, I don't think so on the extent evidence that we have right now. Um, so, you know, obviously the, the law has to be reflective of, of the science and changing science. So I'm going on what we know right now. Um, the vaccination does prevent, uh, not fully, but does reduce significantly transmission. So it's incorrect to portray it as you know, not, not doing that um, on, the, on the evidence that we have now. But also very importantly, it protects the person, him or herself, as a healthcare worker. So one could analyze, um, make an analogy to wearing a hard hat on a construction site. Um, you know, we do need our healthcare workers um, working. <laughs> and, uh, you know, if they have to leave um, their role or, you know, there's shutdowns or, or problems or even, you know, other more uh, delays and denial of healthcare than we've already had. We know there are huge costs and consequences to this. So I also disagree though that, um, that there's necessarily even a, a charter right here, um, but I certainly disagree that it wouldn't be defensible under what we call section one so that it's reasonable and proportionate in all the circumstances. But I do agree, you know, that we have to be reflective of what the science is and the evolving science. And that's the court's job is to look at the um, justification for these things going along. So, and I also think that's a really comforting thing for folks to know is that these things aren't necessarily locked in stone, right? There's always a worry sometimes that it's a slippery slope, and once we put in place some things that might seem intrusive upon people's choices, 
that um, that that we're locked into that. But I, you know, if there's no rationale for it going forward, you can bet your bottom dollar that the the courts will not uphold it in the longer run. But as I said, I think right now it's a slam dunk. And if I may, if I may add to the sure. science and correct um, a Dr. Moore, um, the reality is that the efficacy is very clear. And the reality is, including in Israel, by the way, I lived there 13 years, so I'm deeply involved with the health system there. Uh, and the reality is that uh, not only the efficacy of uh, lower transmission for shorter periods of time, I would recommend to you look at my pin tweet. Uh, it's being used by reporters a lot because it's clear it, it, it provides a path to the understanding of the science there. Also on another issue that we don't speak in Canada, unfortunately, which is long COVID. We don't speak on what, uh, you know, herd immunity does to long COVID. We don't speak about that, by the way, about kids that are suffering already in some instances that. So it, it is both the protection of the public, the protection of oneself, the protection of the livelihood of one's family, because if you have long COVID, my gosh, um, that, uh, that uh, threatens your own livelihood, uh, and the protection of the health system, because we forget the many, 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 my hunch, three years of backlog of procedures and surgeries already here in Ontario, of people that have waited patiently, understandably, generously, by the way, for uh, those that have decided uh, or have contracted the virus. The other thing is, you know, we say 50-50 get the virus. Let me do what the denominator is here. One is, and by the way, that is shifting because now we have more people vaccinated and we know that is even more effective. The denominator is it was when people would say half get it and half doesn't get it and they are all vaccinated or not. That was, you know, the not, not you, Dr. Moore, but in that anti-vaxxer movement, that was the mantra. The reality is this, 50% of the entire population versus 15%, it used to be of the 15 unvaccinated, 15%. So the likelihood of actually contracting the virus, becoming very ill, ending up in a hospital uh, is, uh, we know, is huge. It's four times, you know, in terms of being in an ICU and it's twice in terms of not being alive after. So the efficacy is what will uh, probably prevail in, the, in a quarter challenge, in a core challenge, which I hope that we will not use a lot of the resources and the time on that, but that we will sort it out by understanding the science impact. All right. Now, uh, Marty, uh, you feel, and as a quote from uh, the JCCF site, uh, that this is going to open up uh, the door to even greater government control over Canadians' rights and freedoms and our bodies. How so? Well, I, I think it's pretty clear. Uh, right now, we're talking about you know being vaccinated and uh, mandatory being fully vaccinated, and I think we're we're all of the understanding that being fully vaccinated is likely going to require additional doses in the future. And so I, I, that's a continual notion of government control. And I think just going back to the point about, uh, you know, 
wh whether this will be justified, uh, there, there's a requirement that things be minimally impairing. And, and uh, just to clarify the record, I am not a doctor. I'm, I'm just a lawyer. So uh, that, that, that should be clarified on the record. Um, but, you know, we have clients who are surgeons, leading surgery clinics, who've had a COVID, who've had uh, recovered from that. And, uh, you know, their own uh, personal conditions, whether it's medical or religious, preventing them from getting a vaccination, those individuals getting terminated because of a mandatory vaccination policy is not going to help a single patient on a wait list. Uh, and again, I think we're still ignoring the reality of natural immunity here. And unless that is addressed directly in a policy, it's hard to say that that policy is in fact minimally impairing. The, the rates of people who had COVID, particularly among the unvaccinated, is going up. And uh, blood testing in Alberta, for example, indicates a huger number of people than uh, testing and cases have indicated have actually had COVID. And so the, the fact of ignoring the existing immunity that may be there and may, in fact, according to the Israeli data, I appreciate uh, my doc, uh, Dr. Friend's comments on this, um, but, but that study is quite significant and the largest of its kind, 2.5 million people. And so it's hard to argue with the numbers and the conclusions of that study, but I'd be, I'd be happy to hear my friend's uh, positions on that for sure. All right. Now, you talk about having a policy on herd immunity. Um, how would that even look? Marty? Yes. Well, I, I think there's, there's, there's different ways that could be done. Uh, obviously, there's, there's antibodies, and then there's T-cell and B-cell immunity that can be tested. Uh, and, and then there's just the reality that, uh, you know, there's records of individuals who've had COVID, uh, you know, having had these cases. And so uh, those kinds of things could be recognized as as simply in some ways as as a record of immunization. Uh, Colleen, you feel the provincial governments should be leaving or should not leave the decision about mandatory vaccines to the employer. Why is that? Um, if I could just uh, comment on the, sure. on the last part just a little bit. Um, I think it's important to realize what that proposal would mean though, because really the last thing we want is people deliberately running around getting COVID. Um, you know, unless, you know, unless they are vaccinated, this will likely be, you know, yet more people piling up, uh, the bodies piling up in hospitals and needing health care, pushing out other people. So we don't want to create any kinds of incentives um, for that. And I think the proposal that we've just heard would do that. Um, and I think that's ethically, not only legally, um, defensible to say we don't want to do that, but it's ethically terrible to suggest that um, from a policy uh, perspective, I think. Um, I do think that what's happened, you know, what has happened is, I agree with Doris, it's a bit of a wild west now with all sorts of um, particularities. And, and in some ways, uh, you know, the the rules about where we need to have um, vaccinations, where employees need to be vaccinated is context specific because it depends on the risks of the workplace. Um, but I think it would be, in my view, better if government clearly set out those rules uh, rather than leaving it to individual employees, employers to have to figure this out and, you know, uh, get quite expensive legal advice in order to, to do that. And um, so I just think it's more straightforward. And I appreciate, you know, that this might seem like, again, government um, 
you know, ruling the roost or uh, intruding into individual liberties. But again, um, because we do have the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, you know, in, there are more protections in play when the government does something than when the private sector does it to an individual. I think it's, you know, we can go and launch um, a claim under the Charter of Rights and Freedoms and argue, look, you know, this it's long past due that you got rid of this thing now. We don't need it anymore. Um, and I think um, that that is a better response overall. And, you know, from a business perspective, what a nightmare to have to figure this out on your own and very expensive. And so, you know, large employers might be okay and get the legal advice they need and try to try to fit this together. But sometimes the ones with perhaps not the money to do that might have some of the most um, at-risk folks working for them. Um, so, uh, so, you know, I, I think it would be better, but unfortunately that isn't the case right now. So, uh, Doris, uh- Ontario initially was going to move forward with this, and then they changed their mind, said they would lose thousands of healthcare workers and then leave the system on the verge of collapse. Uh, did we ever get any detail? Have you heard anything from the province about how many thousands would be leaving the healthcare system and where our healthcare system so, would be? Yes, so we did a bit. Uh, the Premier, you may remember, sent a letter with seven questions to all the CEOs uh, of hospitals and to others, me included, and we all responded. Uh, First of all, um, about 90% of them said move ahead. So that's number one. Number two, when the media asked exactly your question to uh, Minister Christine Elliott, uh, when she announced that uh, we are not for now, she said moving, that we will monitor. Uh, What she responded to that question is, well, the premier (laughs) said that statement before he had seen the letters. Which leads me to believe that the premier actually had already made this decision uh, to not move ahead and the letters were just buying time. Uh, What is more tragically is what I have heard directly from insiders to his own uh, caucus and is that the premier is catering to the anti-vaxxer movement. Uh, And that is very concerning because while I believe on civil liberties wholeheartedly, Uh, What we were proposing was something that was time limited, was not forever and ever, right? And that was there to protect the public. I mean, look, I represent 48,000 registered nurses and nurse practitioners. I have a few of those that were in rallies for the anti-masking, anti-lockdown, anti-anti-anti. But I am telling you that 90% of the people I represent said, please move ahead because if not, we will leave. And some have left. Some have left, they're not willing to put their families, themselves and their patients at risk. So the reality is this, if the premier is really concerned about the thousands of nurses, um, repeal Bill 124, because he knows that that's what he's trying to hide here. And I do hope that in a few more days, we will hear that he's going to repeal Bill 124, at least to give some hope to this profession. Nursing is collapsing in Ontario. I spend my entire weekend speaking with nurses that are either left, one, we have an interview today with her, or are leaving or are moving to the US or to jurisdictions outside of Ontario where there is no 1% capping. And they had it. They don't want to be called heroes anymore. They want to be treated as professionals. And the issue of the right to my body, my choice, which is the few that men that comment on that, 
Look, I am a feminist. I absolutely believe on my body, my choice, not on a pandemic situation, not on an issue of a vaccine that we know is its efficacy is hugely high. And then we will have the same issue, by the way, when now children, right, will be started to be vaccinated. I wrote about that on the weekend in my blog, and I recommend to people to read from a physician in Saskatchewan of why he's vaccinated his kids. Mine, my grandkids are all going to be vaccinated. It's an issue of science. I mean, do we oppose the vaccines that are mandatory in schools for children? Are we going to oppose all of them and go back to the era when there were no vaccines? Again, uh, I understand that it's different here, that I understand that people have questions still about, you know, it happened so fast. It was developed so quickly. Um, all those things, right, that need to be explained, need to be explained to the general public, to healthcare professionals, nurses and doctors in particular, but any other healthcare professional. If we cannot practice based on evidence, who is to tell that that same nurse or that same doctor doesn't give a treatment or about cancer or something else to a patient because you know what, I better convince you not because you know uh, natural immunity will be better for you. So there is no end to that discussion of natural immunity, but look what's happening in Europe. Just look mm. what's happening oh, in Europe. Yeah, Europe is a, a basket case once again. Marty, we don't want to be in that spot. No, no, we don't. Uh, but in, in terms of mandatory vaccines, uh, are, are we looking at a possible liability for the employer here? And, uh, you know, I'm looking at, you know, you've got an unvaccinated worker that either comes in and if it's a hospital setting, infects a patient uh, or another worker. Like, where's the liability issue here? And that has well, happened, by the way. I, I think it's I think it's very important to address that that potential risk of transmission. And again, the issue with, uh, you know, if you're if you're naturally immune and you're six to time, 13 times more protected than a double vaccinated person, uh, forcing you to be vaccinated is not justified to prevent transmission. Um, but in those high risk settings, uh, testing, uh, daily testing, rapid testing that can go in, uh, you know, immediately there's been, that's been recommended by professors at Harvard. And I think it's also just important to note just around the whole conversation about vaccines, especially when we bring in children into these things and, and students, we have mandatory vaccination policies happening at universities across Ontario. And, you know, again, the science is incredibly important on these things. And there have been studies that have indicated that, you know, young males, for example, maybe at five times greater risk of an adverse reaction, myocarditis, for example, from a vaccine than they are from COVID. And so, again, the scientific data and the risk analysis is incredibly important. And I think that's what uh, all of this conversation needs to continue to be focused upon. And uh, again, respecting in individual rights will be critical uh, in, in that conversation. Uh, based on the science. If you don't mind, because I absolutely need to leave, they just called me that the premier's meeting is starting. Um, it, that is incorrect. Uh, again, whether it was about um, embolus or whether it was about pericarditis or whether it was about any other condition, quite frankly, uh, the, if you get COVID, you get a much, much higher in all of those indicators. Uh, risks and actual disease than uh, if, if the vaccine. So we can continue to have that discussion. We can exchange articles, I am sure, as I have with many other people that have a different perspective. 
and I would uh, love to continue the conversation, Marty, anytime. Um, I am so sorry that I need to leave. All right, no problem, no problem. Colleen, uh, is, is testing and uh, PPE uh, enough in a healthcare setting to to deal with COVID, or are we look is double vaccination what's going to make it the best? So we, we normally talk about having layers of protection um, and, uh, you know, all of these things are generally important. And as we, um, you know, move to a situation where we have most of the population vaccinated, then we can start to um, lift some of the other layers of precautions and hopefully, you know, get to a place where, those where when where when we in, encounter the um, SARS-CoV-2 virus, we are doing so with a robust immune system. And again, I just repeat, we really don't want to though encourage in any sense people to become sick with COVID without first being vaccinated, um, because there just are so many risks not only to those people, but also to the rest of society as they fill up hospital wards and ICUs. Um, so, you know, I, I just have to say, I'm, I'm so, sorry, but I really do disagree with this idea of natural immunity uh, as some sort of mechanism. Um, and, you know, rig, rig, yeah, so. Uh, okay. Yeah. But, but we have to, you know, continually be looking at the science and certainly the courts will do that. So, you know, if over time um, requirements for vaccination do not seem as just or evidence-based as they are now and other mechanisms can be taken, then fair enough. And certainly if someone uh, are in the rare circumstances where they can't be vaccinated because of a medical reason or they have a true religious um, uh, issue, and, you know, let's be clear, most of the, all, I believe, are the major religions have come out in favour of vaccination. You know, the number of those folks will be very small, but they do need to be, in, uh, you know, accommodated. You know, Marty, I'm, I'm wondering, I had a bioethicist discussing this with me a couple of weeks ago, and and he was, he's pro-vaccination. But he was coming out saying he's trying to figure out why people, these healthcare workers won't get vaccinated and, and wonders if, there's too much pressure. There's the wording is too harsh. Uh, maybe the message is too harsh. What do you think on that? Well, I, I certainly think that the prospect of non like government regulation from the provincial government, uh, not, not setting specific, not addressing particular risks, not, not recognizing individuals risks from COVID or, or even necessarily addressing some of the transmission risks that we're talking about here today uh, does cause people to lack trust in in government and I, I i've never uh considered it a good medical practice and i think the ethics on this in from a medical perspective dating back to the nuremberg code is that once you're beginning to impose medical treatments on people uh you are going to lose their trust and that is a breach of ethics and certainly that plays into into the legal equation as well um the the reality that 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 medical nurses and doctors are facing uh, is that, uh, you know, they want to continue serving their patients. I, the, the clients, the, uh, the practitioners that have worked, reached out to us are not anti-vaxxers. Uh, they have various reasons for this. And I just want to quote or comment on the medical and religious exemptions aspects. We have had the College of Physicians and Surgeons come out and say, 
Only in the very, very, very rarest of cases is a doctor ever ethically permitted to even consider an exemption, uh, resulting in medical exemptions being almost non-existent. Uh, for you know, doctors are not permitted to evaluate a particular patient's circumstances for a broad range of things in regard to this. And, and then in regard to a uh, religious exemption, the Canadian law is clear that regardless of whether, you know, the particular faith group, Jewish, Christian, Catholic, Muslim, whatever it may be, uh, has endorsed uh, vaccination or, or what have you, religious beliefs are, are personal to a person. And so long as they are sincerely held, and, and, and held before a deity, if you will, that's a religious belief, conscientious belief should also be protected. Uh, they shouldn't be questioned by the government and having our government talk about genuine religious beliefs is exactly the kind of society we don't want where government officials or your employer are evaluating your sincerely held religious or conscientious convictions. Uh, that leads to divisiveness and it leads to a disregard of the fabric that holds a multicultural, uh, multi-ethnic and multi-religious society together. And those are the principles outlined in our charter. Of course, the first one being freedom of conscience and religion. All right, uh, Colleen, did you want to jump in on that before I have another question? Um, sure. So, um, yes, I think you, absolutely the way that the law is um, interpreted now, there is freedom of um, religion and it's more of a subjective belief. But of course, when we get to section one, those religious um, convictions, even if passionately held and sincerely held, um, can be overcome by the um, circumstances of the pandemic. And, you know, we should also be aware that, of course, um, you know, under international law, even if not really recognised under the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, we also have a free, uh, rights to health and health care. And, you know, when we think about the pandemic and the toll that it has taken and the thousands and thousands of people who have died and are still dying and will die, um, we have to think about those too. They surely are just as important, aren't they, as these um, civil liberties that are being claimed, freedom of religion, um, freedom of um, security of the person um, or whatever it may be. Uh, so, you know, the way that that comes in at the moment, the way the courts approach it is under our section one. So those interests are weighed there. But in other jurisdictions and, um, you know, and in, in, in my view, um, the primacy of a right to health or health care should, should, I think, be weighed just, just as, in as valuable a way as a right, for example, to privacy or um, conscience. So, and and I think you know when we look at the people that are who have mostly died in this pandemic, it is often some of the most vulnerable in our society. And it you know the court has said, um, the Supreme Court of Canada has said on a number of occasions that you know, the Charter of Rights and Freedoms shouldn't be used to, um, by those who, the haves against the have-nots, right? It shouldn't be able to be weaponized in that way. And I think with this, um, you know, very clearly, uh, the have-have-nots, uh, the ones, you know, it's a very technical legal term, are getting the rough end of the pineapple. And, um, and I think 
you know, I think fortunately our courts up to now have been very aware of that and in all of the cases that have come before them have been very cognizant of that and relatively deferential to um, government choices. This evening I'm going, you know, I teach a, a course called The Law of Modern Day Plague, so I, I teach pandemic law. And one of the things I try to teach my students is about, well, you know, if you're sitting in there with a government and a, a virus is on its way on an airplane from somewhere, um, how what do you advise them to do? You know very little about it. You don't really know how it works yet. You you know you don't know how what the vectors of disease are, but you know it could potentially wipe out a whole population. Do you just sit there twiddling your tups, uh, thumbs, thinking about civil liberties, or you do you take action? And I think public health and public health law supports the idea that you are you are and you should take action. Um, and but you're reflective and evaluative. And you go along and as you get better science, you make better choices. So I agree with Marty totally on that. We have to be always reflecting and making sure that we're only going as far as we have to. Um, but we also have to be aware that there's a lot of stuff that we haven't known, that we couldn't know. And this thing is changing all the time. So you have to cut a bit of slack to governments and you have to trust them. So. You know, I, I wonder if we go back to the beginning of the pandemic, uh, back in March 2020, federal government did have an option to bring in the Emergencies Act. So provinces would not have the say anymore. I wonder what kind of a world we'd be in now if that had to happen. What do you think, Marty? And then Colleen. Well, I can I can say that, you know, government restrictions uh, across the world haven't haven't played out as as hoped. And uh, whether it's been centralized control in some areas, uh, there's been isolated pockets that I know, Colleen, you're familiar with, with New Zealand, which had a unique ability to, to restrict the inflow of people. Um, but but long term, uh, you know, governments and people are going to have to be able to deal with the presence of this new or novel coronavirus. And, uh, you know, I think one of the concerns that I have is exactly for those vulnerable people and those vulnerable populations. And I, I think part of the concern that's 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 been arising is is this idea that well the vaccine is a panacea to all the issues and as we know uh it's not the cdc study in cape cod was kind of a shocking reality check that vaccinated can transmit and do transmit the virus and it can lead uh even to death and so you know having adequate safety protocols adequate testing for vaccinated and unvaccinated may be the appropriate measure in some settings. I think of long-term care homes where I think it's been 75 or 80% of the deaths in, in many Canadian jurisdictions are occurring. Uh, we, we must, again, continue to focus on and ensuring that the vulnerable are protected. And then the reality is, is that this is a respiratory illness, a novel coronavirus that is with us. And, uh, you know, I think that the, the the time for government to just try new things like locking down societies and 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 violating civil liberties without scientific justification at this point, I think the precautionary principle now needs to to revert to scientific data. And again, uh, concepts like natural immunity do need to be addressed. I'm not advocating for people to go out and get. COVID. Uh, but the fact is, as many people have, including our medical practitioners, which is a topic we're discussing right now, and to fire those people just because they don't comply with a certain government mandate, uh, if that's justified uh, by a court, uh, you know, that would be in the absence of science, not the presence of it. Uh, Colleen, uh, what do you think about the Emergencies Act and would that have changed? 
Yeah, so the Emergencies Act, uh, the, the Federal Emergencies Act, was passed in the wake of uh, World War II, and it's actually very um, narrowly written, and it, it really um, uh, gives very limited powers to the federal government to do things like um, lockdowns and um, business closures and things like that. Um, because uh, at the time they were very worried about how um, the Jap Japanese Canadians had been treated in World War II. And so it was written with that very much in mind. And in, in actuality, the provincial emergencies legislation gives way more freedom, if you wish, to the provincial governments to do whatever is really reasonable. It lists a whole bunch of things they can do and then it sort of says, and whatever else is reasonable. So the federal government would have had to pass new legislation, I think, to really to be able to respond. And it's always a bit of a tricky question because I know some people would have thought, well, they might have done, you know, the Liberals might have done a better job than the provinces. But then, you know, if it had been a different stripe of government, they might have had a different view on that, you know, and that's the sort of the world of federalism that we live in. And, um, you know, we see in Brazil, for example, we have had a COVID denier president in power actually trying to prevent, um, you know, prevent masking, prevent precautions being taken. And it's really only because the courts have upheld the ability of the states there to take their own public health measures that, you know, that things aren't as, ter as terrible as they are in Brazil right now. Um, they could have been even worse, but um, the courts have upheld local jurisdiction efforts to try to um, control the pandemic. So it's a bit of a complicated question. I think it does raise this issue as we go into, you know, probably a period of reflection and like I imagine quite a few commissions and thoughts on, you know, what could we have done and should we have done better? What structures do we need to have in place? You know, so if, when we get the next massive public health challenge, which may be in the form of antimicrobial resistance or another kind of virus coming at us, that we're better able to respond. And I think what I see is that sometimes laws are written to reflect, you know, what we've just had. So, for example, the federal emergencies legislation reflecting sort of a bad experience at that point in time. And then, you know, what the way that we set up all our public health structures after SARS sort of assumed SARS, right, assumed um, that did not uh, allow for asymptomatic transmission, which is a huge part of the challenge with COVID-19, with SARS-CoV-2. With, with SARS, we didn't have that many um, people die because the vectors of the disease, that is the humans, died, right? Um, so we just didn't see the sort of scale of what we've seen now. But it would be wrong, I think, to write, you know, the next sort of set of public health laws to reflect SARS-CoV-2 without sort of thinking more generally what's likely to come at us and what sort of levels of, of governance do we need. But I do agree that um, I think governance per se is in, is in a dreadful state. So folks, you know, like me who have been very, critical of the government for its handling of the pandemic, you know, but I'm in favor of, of more precautions. I'm in favor of trying to stop COVID-19. And then others who think what government is doing is an overreaction. So everyone has something very negative to say, um, mostly about governance and governments. 
And I think, you know, that reckoning has to come. We're going to have to have a long, hard think about all of this and what it means um, for democracy and governments and governance uh, going forward. Well, folks, a great discussion on a very controversial issue, and I want to thank you for joining us. Our guest on Unpublished TV today, Dr. Doris Grinspoon, CEO with the Registered Nurses Association of Ontario. Marty Moore is a lawyer with the Justice Centre for Constitutional Freedom. And Colleen Flood is the University Research Chair in Health, Law, and Policy at the University of Ottawa. And I want to thank you for watching Unpublished TV. Stay safe. I'm Ed Hand.